Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. This week on our panel, we have Gant Laborde. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Daniel Zvoboda. Uh, get close Voboda. on that? Zvoboda, yeah. Cool. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Let everybody know why you're important. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I am um, right now a data scientist at Verizon. My background is from Stevens Institute of Technology. I have both my um, bachelor's and master's there. My master's in machine learning. So I've worked a variety of jobs in top companies, including like S&P Capital IQ, Bank of America, AT&T. My background has been machine learning, deep learning, and has now been increasingly more and more uh, natural language processing. My interests have always been in understanding like other cultures, history and linguistics. So when I got into machine learning, I found out about NLP and I found it it was like a natural fit for me, given my prior interests. Are you a software engineer trying to learn machine learning? Then you should check out the course from Educative.io called Machine Learning for Software Engineers. It has 87 lessons, 8 quizzes, 115 challenges, 163 playgrounds, and 2 code snippets. In other words, it's not just a set of videos that tell you how to do the thing. It actually walks you through all of the processes for machine learning. It gives you quizzes, it makes you do challenges, it's very hands-on, it's done with experts from companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple, and it is a terrific course that I've been learning to do machine learning. So go check it out at devchat.tv slash learnml. That's devchat.tv slash learnml, and that'll take you to the right place so you can sign up for the course. All right, I got to stop you because you used the slang term NLP. Uh-huh. Right. What it is means, NLP for people? It means natural language processing. Okay. Can you give us an example of how it's used? Yeah. So there's a lot of things. For example, sentiment analysis. People will have like, let's say, tweeting. If there's an uproar about something politically going on, you know, people will make like, how would I say, like, ins- you know, incessant ranting. And the NLP can automatically classify as like, very angry, partially angry. So it can go along more of like a spectrum of sentiments, like from neutral to positive emotion to very heavily negative emotion. Another one would be like document summarization where you have documents and, you know, sometimes in our age, people are very busy and they want the Cliff Notes version. So if you train an algorithm, it will find like either the most relevant sentences and publish that so you get an idea. Or in some of the newer versions of NLP, they'll generate its own sentences and the sentences will be succinct regarding the topic. For more of like what's going on in everyday life, you know, when you're going to technical support, you're going on the chatbots. So chatbots are definitely NLP. They work more and more by text data. Whereas in the past with NLP, you would be writing like a program and writing if-else constructs. Mm -hmm. Everything is basically trained by uh, data. And especially now in the age of deep learning, we're getting much, much more fantastic results and that we're basically able to pick up more of the subtle nuances of linguistics, which in itself is very fascinating because linguistics is a very, very slippery subject. I would say it's both an art and a science. There's the science of analyzing the statistics and forming the formal rules. 
but it's also an art because, you know, you're reading literature, everything is basically subjective in how you look at the words. So there's like a lot of subtle nuances and grasps that people can pick up, but computers can hardly pick up. And Mm -hmm. this is actually the big thing that people are hoping computers can do, because if computers can pass the Turing test, meaning it can be able to understand a conversation as a normal person does, then basically computers are now people. They're as intelligent as people. So Yeah. Nice. Wow. I you can know. write sentiment analysis for Twitter. Angry. <laughs> it always angry. returns angry. <laughs> no. If somebody mentions a politician, it returns irate. There you go. That's true. <laughs> it's been, yeah. Especially, that's the 2020 algorithm for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, what's really cool about this is, you know, People probably don't understand, or some people might not understand that, you know, AI being applied to images, AI being applied to sound, AI being applied to chemicals, and AI being applied to, to words like you're talking about here. Stru- the structures are, are so unique because those, those mediums are so unique. And so, you know, just because uh, we're, we're seeing these advancements on one side, now we have to figure out, do they come over into another or something mm-hmm. like that, because I know that specifically, each of these concepts seems to be borrowing from from one another. Is there so you're saying that you work a lot with NLP now? Is is that something where would you say in all the different branches of what machine learning and deep learning can do? How is that doing in compared to let's say something like computer vision? So I would honestly say that. NLP is dragging behind a little bit in computer Mm -hmm. vision because when you have a video or when you have a picture, a lot of things, and I'm not a computer vision expert, but I have some ideas of what's going on. You know, people try to like look at the faces. They try to identify maybe possibly the emotions or, you know, they keep track of people. And that honestly, I think is relatively easy. I mean, it's not easy, but relatively easy in terms of the deep learning and machine learning field, because you basically program all these sets of parameters, you know, like motion detection, pixel change, you know, as long as you find the right variables and train it up, you're going to get like, you know, reasonably accurate things in computer vision. And just as a side note, it's now so scarily accurate, you know, Amazon, they're building their own prime stores where instead of like people using their credit card, if you have an Amazon account, you just go in the cameras. Oh yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they can track like what you're taking off and what you're putting back on the shelf. And then you just simply go out and uh, Amazon will automatically debit. And I, you know, as a side note here, when the, when the riots were going on, a couple of people had tried to loot the prime stores and then they were suddenly shocked, like with the bills they got because the cameras. Had- <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's um, very funny. <laughs> I've been in one of those stores in Seattle and it's, it's, it's kind of weird. Like they have somebody there, like they have an employee there, but they're, they're just there to help you and basically do tech support. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, so I walked in and they're like, do you have an account? You know, are you set up for the, you know, the walk in, pick something <laughs> up and walk out? And I wasn't. So they were there to help me do that, basically. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So th- that's that's ridiculously cool with. So, so it 
it's really easy. You were talking about all the different applications, like catching faces, watching stuff go on. Um, I'll tell you this with NLP or like, you know, machine learning and deep learning towards text. What are the different things that are really hot right now in, in that field? You were talking about sentiment analysis as one of them. So what other things would people sort of like jump into lots of NLP for they're trying to solve a problem? So for example, there is now like building ontologies, uh, for example. So in banks, for example. That's a $5 word. What's an ontology? (laughs) Ontology is basically like, to give like a layman's term, the vocabulary you use in an inside group. So you're in a a Dungeons and Dragons meetup. You saw my books behind me or something, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Daniel casts Magic Missile. <laughs> yeah, and if you're like a Star Wars fan, you know, you're mm-hmm. saying words like the Force, you're having mm-hmm. your own uh, ontology there. So maybe I would say it's roughly equivalent to private language and things like that. So gotcha. in banks right now, for example, fraud detection is now becoming increasingly popular. So a lot of security experts, you know, they work back and forth with the banks and they have a lot of domain information. So it's, it's to go off a side note, when you're a data scientist, you always have to work with the domain knowledge. So, you know, sometimes as an NLP person, you're working with like the linguist because the linguist will know the specific vocabulary and what to watch out for training. So, you know, Wikipedia is like the ontology, the one ontology to rule them all. That's usually like a <laughs> training everything. So... There's a lot of algorithms, like one of the hmm. is graph neural networks, which works like a neural network, but takes the graph structure into account. So you have like all your words that are connected as a graph, like with distances, yep. and then they're able to like, you know, do classification of what the person is talking about, what the words are meaning, what is the context of the conversation. So that's one example. Like another example is, question answering. So, you know, I write write out a question and, uh, you know, you get an answer. This Mm -hmm. has been actually a thing that's been going on for a long, long time. NLP actually is very old. It's been dated back to the 1950s. Like Mm -hmm. everyone had that rush of the computer age where (laughs) we have computers. Oh my God, we're going to, you know, be in the singularity already. And then (laughs) he said, all we got to do is just get these part of speech tags and we're golden. Computers are people. And, right. and they turned out that it was not that simple. Yeah. But now because of more and more evolving art, NLP has come to the forefront, especially now with machine learning and deep learning, probably since the 2010s, I would say more and more. And as a side note, I would say what's been really, really driving this is the big data revolution. So mm-hmm. You know, everyone now has the ability, you know, using Hadoop or Spark to train so much data. And that's why we're getting fantastic results. It's a lot of the algorithms have actually been around for a long time, but it's just the ability to process data so much and very quickly that we've been able to get these fantastic results. So going back to the question answering in the 60s and 70s, there was actually a famous program called ELISA, where... Mm -hmm. They were trying Mm -hmm. to use principles of psychology where someone would ask a question, they would parse the words or they would get the sentence and 
they would use that like whole sentence or parts of the words and then reformulate another question. And it sounds very dumb, but they actually did get like a lot of results that, you know, most people could understand most of the time. And, uh, but now with question answering, because deep learning is now able to get the subtle nuances, more and more they're able to formulate like the right type of answer for the question that you know a person is looking for, something that is pertinent to the conversation. It's still an ongoing art because if you try to have a conversation, after three or four sentences, you like lose the context of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to the very slippery art of linguistics, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because unless you're in the know for the group, at some point you're going to lose track, you know, but person who is very well aware of, you know, the ontology or the going on to the group, you know, they're able to follow all those social nuances. Uh, that's the that's... way why linguistics is a slippery art because, you know, it's very, very private language, you know, Star Wars geeks, I mean, that's <laughs> really what's going on with the Star Trek geeks, for example. <laughs> hey, I think they joined teams at some point uh, here. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think, I think that the, the feud is finally over. And plus, don't forget how Gandalf said, uh, use the force, Harry Potter. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what, <laughs> what I will say is um, that is really cool. And using it to, to have a conversation, I think there's always been a lot of money behind that, you know, uh, chatbots, right? I think a lot of people are looking towards chatbots now and they're using things like BERT, which... Let yeah, you know, if you want to chat about or and I don't know a lot about this, but uh, it seems like GPT two came out, and then there's this giant hoopla about uh, this marketing is like it's too dangerous to release to the world. You know, we can't have all this generative text. So, would you say that 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 sort of that chatbot thing? What people are probably using Bert? Or like how how is that coming along? Are we are we a few years away from people being able to set up a chatbot to, to basically do customer support? Are we five years away, a decade away? What, what's your thoughts on any of those, those crazy things that people are coming out with? Or is it all hype? Is GPT-2 and 3 not dangerous for the world? I mean, honestly, I think it's too early to tell. And mm-hmm. the reason why is that a lot of, the, a lot of these discoveries, you know, BERT, GPT, they're coming out from DeepMind, from Google. You know, Google is basically like the genius laboratory where they mm-hmm. are coming out with all these ideas now, open sourcing it, you know. And then I think it's up for the companies or for people to individually use it. You know, if you are a Kaggle person and Kaggle is like the site where, you know, companies and people publish data and they allow people to like go online and you know work out all the algorithms, the feature engineering. Sometimes it's basically the equivalent to what is open source the program. You know, open source mm-hmm. there all the GitHubs with the codes you can download. Kaggle is maybe what the equivalent for data scientists, except that it's not only code but you know methods of what people do. And you know, I consider myself well reasoned, well seasoned data scientist. But Mm -hmm. there's always more and more techniques you're going to find all the time. Like, I get a problem, I'm going to be stuck. 
and you know, I go on Kaggle and Kag- and someone will come up with an innovative solution and I go, huh, why didn't I think of that? You know, <laughs> it's the stack overflow. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. But I do know because I had interviewed in the past for a couple companies, you know, there is a lot of startups right now that are trying to take advantage of the chatbot revolution, mm-hmm. whether it's like, you know, putting chatbots for other companies or making it for a very specific purpose. They are definitely coming out with a lot of innovative ideas. And I'll give you one example. A while back when I was in between jobs, there was a startup where they were trying to market a chatbot for job interviewers. And job interviewers, it's one of the huge headaches because, you know, computer science people, technical people, they have to work with HR because HR is usually the type of people who formulate the job descriptions that they're looking for. And unless the computer scientist is, you know, easily available to look through all the resumes, they get all filtered through HR. And HR people, usually they're not going to be technically minded. So mm-hmm. they might accidentally throw out, you know, some people who actually might have been rele- very relevant for the job. You know, maybe a job description, for example, will say, oh, we need eight years of someone with Scala. And Someone comes with a resume and they have 10 years of Java and the mm-hmm. HR person will just throw mm-hmm. that out. But the computer science person would say, well, wait a minute, this guy looks like he could work for us because, you know, uh, Scala and yeah. Java are both JVM languages. Yeah. So the idea was that they wanted to create a chatbot where in the first round interview, you were physically communicating with a chatbot and the <laughs> chatbot would ask you all these relevant questions. So they would parse things relevant for jobs. They could possibly use things like synonym detectors. You know, if you're saying you have Java, how close is that to uh, Scala, for example? If they go to those personal questions, maybe there's like sentiment analysis, syntax analysis to say like, is this guy sufficiently enthusiastic about the position we're looking for, for example? So I think right now we are in a stage of it's uh, too early to tell. And it's mainly because so much more advances have come out before companies can adopt it. You know, when you work in a big company, the thing is that they go through a lot of review processes. So usually they're behind the curve unless their competitors really get behind it. And then at that point, they start to speed up in using the data science methodology. So I'll give you an example. Bank of America, they tend to be very conservative and banks are very, very conservative because you know, you're dealing with people's customer accounts. They don't want to take risks. They're very, very careful about their reputations. But when their competitors had started using machine learning, they wanted to get on the bandwagon with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> by, by the way, when, when you mentioned a person who's interviewing first has to talk to a bot, there's this, uh, there's this game called Portal. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> they had this, these posters all throughout the game that says, know your paradoxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? <laughs> it's like uh, if if you get attacked by a rogue AI, stand still and scream. This statement is false. <laughs> to go ahead and break the AI. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, if I were ever in an interview with uh, with a bot, I would that'd be the first thing I say to it. Probably would not get that <laughs> job at all. I don't think so. <laughs> That's a really cool application. You know, I think that it's really easy to come up with visual, at least for me, it's really easy to come up with visual applications of AI, but I know that they're using it in smell, like to detect 
if a food is tasty, they're using it in medicine. And using it in language is such a cool application, but I always have a little bit more trouble. That's why I love the examples that you're talking about. Mm. Have, have a first round of interviews to make sure a person hits a certain skill set. That's a great idea. Or being able to read resume. I, I heard that they can read uh, law books now mm-hmm. to, to see like if a contract is valid or not. Just really, really... The idea of being able to read and take that information is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean... That, well, that, they evaluate it at speeds that are just, you know, it taking the right. journey an hour, right? Or two yeah, hours or however long. I heard one thing is that they caught mistakes that the top attorneys in the world couldn't catch and stuff like that. So uh, weirdly enough, we might end up in a very new legal system <laughs> where lawyers are feeding contracts straight into AI, which means that all contracts need to start with this statement is false. That's that's all I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> Um, what are you working on this morning? I'm programming my legal counsel. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I guess like one of the things that kind of comes along is that uh, you were talking about all this big data, right? This big data and training, Hadoop and Spark. One of the ways we've kind of gotten around, you know, having to have clusters sitting there at Google is transfer learning for images. What's your thoughts on using transfer learning for NLP? Okay, you used another slang term, transfer learning. Oh, yep, yep, yep. Actually, (laughs) Daniel, you want to take it? Yeah, so transfer learning is where you have predetermined architectures, complex architectures that have known to work. And this is something that actually has been straight adopted from computer vision. And this actually is a new revolutionary thing for... NLP because when transfer learning came out, they have like they had like 60, 70 layers of convolutional networks. Co briefly, convolutional networks are the type of neural networks that are adapted best for reading images. And when that came out, that started generating these really huge uh, advances in computer vision. So everyone was saying, Oh, you know, if we can do this, why can't we do this for NLP? But for a couple of years, there was sort of like a ground, a a standstill because everyone had tried to take like the architectures from computer vision, but they got like limited uh, results in uh, natural language processing because Mm. what works for images does not necessarily, you know, work for languages. I can give you one good example. Computer vision, you know, they're based on state, state, you know, like what one pixel is to another pixel. And, you know, these type of neural networks, what's called convolutional neural networks, they're adapted because they go from like, they're based on the position, you know, all the positioning of the pixels. And there are some things in languages that do work with position, but not necessarily. Mm -hmm. So there is another type of architecture in uh, NLP called LSTMs, long short-term memory. And they're what's called state space. And state space, that's how you hear everything. Like right now, what I'm talking, you're hanging on to every word that I say. And, you know, the way that you're going to react is going to be basically based on how I'm saying the next word and so on. You know, if I suddenly said like, you know, you know, like a curse word to you, then you're just going to like pop out because that was completely unexpected, you know, because there is the flow of the conversation. 
and then suddenly <laughs> my topic something out that is like completely out of the context, you know. So you're trying yeah. to learn exactly within the context. So, but there has been now some discoveries as of late. Mm-hmm. After some scientists at Google came out with the transformer and the BERT architecture, so they have premiered these architectures, which are specifically made for NLP, and they have been getting really, really great advances. So one example is the BERT architecture, which mm-hmm. is trained on sentences. And to give you a bit of a background, NLP has had before was the word to VEC and glove. That was actually a revolution in itself because what they did was they had neural networks that you would take like a certain amount of words, like let's say seven words, nine words from a sentence in paragraphs. You train on like, you'd hide one word, but you'd have like the first three and the last three words. And then you'd have the net, uh, architecture pick up like, what is that uh, hidden word it's trying to predict? So there's a lot of fancy architecture and so on. And, but the, long, the, long, the short story is that it was a groundbreaking revelation in itself because it was able to pick up the syntax of a sentence. So mm-hmm. we were talking about ontologies before. If I took all these paragraphs on Wikipedia, maybe on Star Wars and trained word to vec, you would get like the semantic meaning. So one example would be like, if you took, if you computed the numerical vectors, which are the end results of these, mm-hmm. and you had the numerical vectors for like king, queen, man, and woman, then if you did like, you know, an analogy like man is the king as woman is the queen, if you did these numerical operations, they would actually map out the same. So you're actually preserving the syntax. So BERT is a huge advancement in that because. Now we're stepping up the scale. Instead of just individual words, now you have the ability of sentences to be transcribed into numerical vectors. Mm -hmm. And so that was like, there's such huge possibilities there. So if I'm entering a search engine and I want to say like, bring me up, you know, sites on Star Wars, then not only would it do that, but it would look at very similar queries and it can, you know, do cosine analysis uh, to find very, very similar queries or similar websites. So it has the potential of like getting down for search engines to be much more accurate than possible. Very cool. Nice. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So I have an off-key question here. You mentioned a lot of Star Wars and Star Trek. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, was that a huge inspiration for you getting into being a data scientist? Or like, what was sort of the story of you getting involved in that? Because I can see... You know, it's obviously influenced you. And I don't know if that's that's sort of like what started this whole thing, because it's an advanced it's advanced yeah. thing. And I wonder how people kind of get started on stuff like this. Uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing, because when I was watching Star Wars and Star Trek, 
you know, they had the artificial intelligences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That never came first to my mind. You know, what came first to my mind was everyone going at warp speed and <laughs> able to travel to other planets. So in another, you know, with the other right influences, maybe I could have tried to gone into physics and find, you know, the next warp engine. But um, yeah. realistically... I'm uh, still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, airplane flights still suck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bring back the Concord. Uh, we could go go back to that step in order to like make the next step from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my uh, interest when I was at uh, when I was at college, I was into hugely into computer programming, math, and mm-hmm. funny enough, history. You know. Oh. Okay. Talk- yeah. Yeah. I would tell people those interests and they would say like, well, that's like an odd combination, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So, you know, I initially had been ambling around and I was very, I was very interested in mathematics. So I had studied computer engineering and I was interested in computer engineering stuff that was more towards the mathematical side. So initially Mm. I wanted to work in image processing and, uh, when I had gone back for my master's, I was taking classes towards it. My advisor, like when I went to him, you know, asking what classes I should take, he one day said, uh, oh, you know, you need to take machine learning because that is an up and coming subject. So mm. I took it and I don't know if anyone has like these out of the bulk blue insights, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like when you want to say in your mind, metaphorically, Eureka. That's what happened. Yeah, yeah, yep. It was just such an awesome subject. I mean, the fact that you could (laughs) use all these modern algorithms and predict things that I just went to my advisor. I said, okay, I'm switching my uh, concentration from image processing to this, to uh, learning. But so I had gone into machine learning, but machine learning, I would call it a meta subject because it's a list of techniques but you need to specialize in a certain area how you're going to use machine learning. So mm-hmm. there is computer vision, there is recommendation systems, you know, what's driving your choices for Netflix and Amazon and so on. So there are all these wide areas. And for a bit, I initially, I had worked at a company where I was planning to do image processing with machine learning. But then after that, the company had like, was not doing well. They had to like lay off their workforce and I was out on the market again. And I went as a contractor to Standard and Poor's and they put me on this natural language processing. And that was Hmm. my Eureka moment. And I found out how natural language processing is really tied into linguistics. There, it doesn't sound like history and linguistics are very similar, but in many, many ways they are. Because when you study history, if you're studying like the history of France or Germany, you see like how their languages evolved over time and how they have their own concepts. So there was sort of like a short leap from history to linguistics and then from linguistics to uh, natural language processing. So if anyone is trying to get into machine learning and trying to find their own interest, I would say, you know, think what your other interests are and see what like other subject could really fit into that, you know? Very nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. And it's interesting too. I mean, you're talking about, you know, again, the, the natural 
language processing and you're talking about history and things like that. And yeah, I mean, you know, when we talk about World War II, for example, and, and this is just an example, my wife's a, she'll watch any special that has anything to do with World War II. And what what's interesting is is that a lot of it comes out of yeah the perspective of you know when when the U.S. got into the war and then you know storming the beaches of Normandy and things like that right because that's where our troops from the U.S. you know were heavily involved you know Pearl Harbor and things like that but yeah if you go over to Germany and you talk about the history of World War II they're going to talk about the rise of the Third Reich and that's going to be much more of a focus and and how yeah. it happened and why it happened and what was going on and what sort of the the national uh, mindset was and then you know how it was overcome and how they rebuilt and you know all of that stuff and so mm-hmm. you know it's it's a different thing you know and and you know how Germany got divided between the, the Soviets and the US right and so yeah, it's it's a different mindset. So we're talking about the same things. We're actually using a lot of the same words, but you know, our our thought process about it is different, and that changes the meaning of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's it's always from a from a perspective, and I think that that's you know, with, with it, I think it's good that the cross pollination of those concepts, like we see that in machine learning as well. You're looking at the they're trying to apply something here, and you were saying some of the breakthroughs that happen. But but each of these things, I think, like coming in interested in, you know, math and history, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that was that that was going to land you in a in those eureka moments that they're specific for you. And I think like like that each of us are still trying to find those. Yeah, that, that's the thing. I think life is uh, just a, us all trying to find our next eureka moment. Mm-hmm. It's a, kind of an interesting perspective com- combining that, you know, what's our what's our world war story? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I guess since since you've you've been in this field for a bit, is there anything that you want to talk about with NLP that might be um like really interesting that people should understand the mechanics of if someone were like, okay, you know, this this episode was my Eureka moment. Mm. I want to use NLP to do this not what kind of what kind of first steps or what's what's the hot technology that they should be kind of checking out mm. in order to to advance in that field? So I think that's a very good question. And uh, initi- I, I would say this, like how I tried to learn myself, like initially, you know, I had found books, I had found research papers mm-hmm. and. I had uh, Stanford, for example, they have open source their lectures on, you know, YouTube for processing. So they have like two classes. Uh, One is the straight natural language processing, which goes into all the theories about linguistics, like morphologies, syntaxes. And then they have the deep learning class where they go more into like the deep learning architectures, like what deep learning is and what architectures have worked best in deep learning. But honestly, I, you know, I just got so much into it that literally I then had to force myself to start practice programming. And Mm. when I started practice programming, I honestly learned a lot more than I did just reading the theory. So number one, I would definitely say instead of manically trying to read everything, start programming first. So some of the popular libraries are um, NLTK. NLTK is a natural language toolkit for Python. And it's basically the original and kind of like the gold standard. I would say browse the APIs 
another one is called Spacey, and that is relatively new. And Spacey has a lot of functionalities from NLTK, but they also have some newer technologies. Some of them are being able to incorporate like the architectures from transfer learning, for example, downloading like architectures online. And it's really more modern because they have the same things you would find in NLTK, like part of speech taggers, phrase chunkers, but they use deep learning techniques in order to parse them out. Whereas NLTK uses like the more old established uh, statistical methods. So one of the things I would say, and sorry to go off on a tangent, a lot of times people, when they try to get into machine learning and uh, natural language processing, they get very, very disenchanted because unlike computer programming, you know, you just learn C++, you learn data structures and algorithms, and then you're all set to go. Deep machine learning, there's so many variety of subjects. There's linear algebra, there's calculus, there's optimization, probability, statistics. And some people just give up because they feel like they're so lost in the weeds with all these complex subjects they have to start. But I would say start, you know, going through the APIs, understand the fundamental techniques of how to get data and how to clean data. So cleaning data is stemming, lemmatization, phrase chunking, getting part of speech tags. Learn how to use like the basic machine learning or deep learning libraries like sklearn, deep learning, um, Keras. Just learn how to put your data in, analyze your data. I think like the first step that breaks all barriers is just learn how to like parse text, put it into a machine learning algorithm and see what your results are. And, you know, sometimes people just see like, oh, this is so cool. I got like a 90% accuracy, you know. And I'm already able to like predict this. And then once you're there, you're hooked in. And then, you know, from there, like, I would say start working on individual projects. I had mentioned Kaggle. Go on Kaggle, look at what data sets are out there, what people have done, you know, gain your ideas. I would say start from a practical oriented approach and go more to the more, the- more to the theoretical. Like when you're starting to work, like, let's say with, language models, when you want to like make generative text on Harry Potter, then like when you get into that, then I would say once you get the practicality down, go to like YouTube or go to Coursera and look at like how language models work. So then you understand the theory and then that will probably put a little bit more color into like the lines that you've drawn in your painting. Nice. Yeah. I could tell you, I, I, I'm at step one of that. <laughs> I've, I've taken a, the language of a podcast once and I ran it through and I got 30% accuracy for generating what's coming up next. It is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, if I take all this podcast text, can I generate an entire podcast? I tell you what, I can generate something that sounds like beat poetry. <laughs> just <laughs> nonsensical words that come out from previous podcast episodes but it was i did you, to your point i learned a ton i had fun doing it and i think that helps me out get to the next level on that but i think it is fair to say where nlp is it is it is a multi book series mm-hmm. <laughs> to get to somewhere 
where you can have some serious application. Hopefully that's going to change. I mean, I feel like all that, all this always starts that way. Like begin the saga to be able to finally make something useful. And then that always gets condensed to a four dummies book where you can kind of knock it out pretty fast. I don't know how far away that is, but I, I really enjoyed the, the process, but also at the same time, I always want the product. And I have to say, I don't feel threatened then if you can't generate a podcast without me. No, no. <laughs> I really wonder if I took all the text from these, from all these podcasts and then I had it generate stuff, what, what, what kind of insanity would come out of something like that? I'm excited. This, this might be oh, my next I'm thing. Scared. Maybe I'll use, maybe I'll use, uh, this, well, actually, Daniel will tell me what, what to use and then I'll put it in there. Yes. Yeah, so now uh, I'm scared. Is that what I sound like? <laughs> <laughs> this is unintelligible. Anyway, <laughs> I like this idea because it doesn't. No one's going to blame the algorithm. They'll just they'll just blame uh, Chuck. So, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's really cool though. Is is that what you kind of work with every day? Like a high level concept, or I mean, I'm sure you can't tell us too much about what you work with every day, but or are you generally find yourself fine tuning something that already works? I mean. When you're working with data science, I would say it's definitely a science. And th- when I went from programming to data science, it definitely was a big shift in my paradigm because, you know, when you're doing programming, mm-hmm. you're writing code, something goes wrong, you know, you're debugging line by line. And, you know, you might have to revise like a function block or a class block, but nothing really so major. But when you're dealing with data science, it really is like a science. And, you know, I pride myself on like knowing math, but there's a difference between like, let's say knowing math and having to do science. When people do science, they do, you know, the scientific method, you know, problem, hypothesis, procedure, you know, observations, conclusion. So I would say you have to be something of a bit more mindful because there is if you're doing everything naively initially, one of the naive ways when you're doing machine learning is you're taking all these models, you know, you're, you're doing ground testing, you're checking like what are the accuracies, then you might say, okay, out of all these models, the support vector machine has worked the best, you know, and then you take the support vector machine and you're fine tuning the margin window and all these other parameters you're trying to prevent overfitting. So it's like all these multi-label things you have to keep track of. And sometimes it can be a bit frustrating because, you know, you do all this effort, but still you're only getting 60, 70% accuracy. Then you have to yeah. say, oh, I did as much as I could. I need more data or I need more features. You know, sometimes you'll have to say, I'm sorry, you know, we can't get more accuracy, but we seem to see like a lot of descriptive things with these variables here and here, you know, we're seeing really good things with these features, but we're not seeing good things with these features. Maybe we need to do feature engineering and extract Mm -hmm. more and more of these variables. So, you know, you look at the results and you say like, okay, this is doing well, but it's not doing well here. So maybe there is like a model that is known to do better with these things. And then that's before we even get into the techniques of like, let's say, ensembling models where you're working with multiple models that you know are going to work well and you're throwing them in like to see if they're going to 
of your classification. So I definitely would say it's a much, much more multidimensional way of thinking. And in many ways, I'm still getting up to speed to it as well. And mm-hmm. I would say a lot of scientists, not just data science, but you know, in chemistry, in physics, it's an evolving art for them because they get to be domain experts. They have to gradually know what works here and here, refining their processes. It's probably like, for example, why when you see Nobel Prize winners in chemistry, a lot of the people who get them are in their 60s or 70s. And that's because they worked up a lifetime of getting knowledge in order to make like the right breakthrough that got them that prize, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's surprisingly an interesting industry because, you know, there's a lot, there's very few places. And that's a true science because there's very few places where you could say, hey, we tried to build this. It, it currently can't be built. We have to go back to the drawing board. And, you know, there are entire industries where someone comes in and says, hey, I, I, I want to have a model that does this. And, the, you know, they have to put a lot of money forward and they could possibly at the end of it come back with, sorry, it can't be done <laughs> with what we have. It's, a, it's really yeah. cool that we're still, you know, we're able to do that and that we could still actively in, invest in science that way. Because, um, a lot of people will not put money forward for things like that anymore. Yeah, well, the other thing that's interesting there, and I wouldn't be shocked at all if we see the same kinds of discoveries in machine learning, and that is that a lot of times what happens is somebody theorizes, okay, well, we could make a better model doing this, that, or the other, and then they somehow make a mistake, right? And the mistake is, oh, wow, now we're getting a 90% success rate Right. And so then they go do the work to prove it's not a fluke. And it turns out that that mistake was the breakthrough. Right. Oh, so yeah. It, it, it happens quite a bit. And there usually it's with or we've seen a lot more of this in like in chemistry or in some of the more mm. physical sciences. But at the same time, I mean, it's like, oh, well, this is a consistent result over and over and over again. So it, you know, and, and then we advance. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Daniel, if people want to connect with you online, where are the best places for them to do that? Yes. So you could connect with me, I guess, through my email, which is my first name, daniel.svoboda at gmail.com. I think I also have a LinkedIn account. I mean, I can send that as well. It should be under my name. So, you know, people could either message me, but I think probably by email would be more preferential. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and deviate into our final segment, which is picks. And picks are just great stuff that you're enjoying in life. So a lot of times folks will pick uh, books or movies or things like that. Sometimes they pick tech or tech tools. And sometimes it's just, you know, whatever. So Mm -hmm. uh, Gant, why don't you go ahead and start us off? I've I've got a pick here that is specifically, this is an exclusive for our listening audience, is that, um, yeah, I... I get asked, how do I get started in AI over and over and over again? Funny enough, I was like, ah, I should write this down. So (laughs) I made a flow chart of like, if you're interested in one thing or another, if you know that you're ultimately going to go into, you want to study the mathematics of it, you know, showing what courses I've taken and other people have also approved of, or if you just want to get there to building something, if you want like a crash course, it'll point you towards that one. So I made a I made a flowchart and it is at bit.ly that's bit.ly slash AI 
quick start, all one word, all lowercase. I'll put it in the show notes there as well. So that you can click on it. So yeah, it, that flowchart just basically says, hey, what is it that you actually want to do? And once you know what you want to do, it tells you, all right, go take this Coursera course because uh, I took it and a bunch of other people say it's great. Or go read this book. So uh, I, I got sick of answering the same question. I made a flowchart out of it. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. I think it's really cool. And anybody listening, that link's only being given out here on the podcast. Awesome. I'm going to throw in some picks. Now, I've been spending a lot of time on marketing lately. Um, oh, the, Gant, the Gant evil secret com- arts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should compare notes since you do a lot of the marketing for yeah. Red. But yeah, I've gotten into Russell Brunson's materials lately. So I did the One Funnel Away Challenge, which was awesome if you're getting into uh, marketing. And I'm just going to pick his books. He has dot-com secrets, expert secrets, and traffic secrets. And it basically just breaks down how to set up marketing funnels, how to build products and build movements. That's what Expert Secrets is about. And then Traffic Secrets is, you know, how to run traffic to your funnels. And anyway, it's it's great stuff. And I'm really, really enjoying everything that I've been getting from it. I also went to their live online summit and a bunch of other stuff. So I'm excited about that as well. And then I've started rereading the Wheel of Time books or listening to them on Audible. And those are great books by Robert Jordan. Brandon Sanderson finished them off, wrote the last three of them off of Robert Jordan's notes. But yeah, they're great. I really, really enjoy have enjoyed those books over the years. And so I'm going to pick those as well. Daniel, Mm. you have Uh, some picks? Yeah. So like in terms of shows, you know, I've been referencing Star Wars and Star Trek a lot. And part of it is because I've been watching now recently Star Trek Picard, which is on uh, CBS All Access. And it's like really, really blown my mind away. And I was really surprised because the Star Trek, like from the next generation to Enterprise, you know, that was like Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise. They, you know, they had slightly different storylines, but they started to follow into the same formulas. and. I suspect that's why people started getting very tired of Star Trek Enterprise because it was just very, very formulaic. Like Mm -hmm. they tried to, of course, do some things that they think they didn't do before, but it still was very formulaic. And Picard is completely a new paradigm on how they do Star Trek. I mean, they must have taken a cue from like uh, how they ramped it up you know, with the new Star Trek movies. Picard is like, they make like a much more complex storyline that was simply in uh, Star Trek. Like everyone, you know, in the next generation, they're shown to be like, you know, all Renaissance men. You know, everyone knows Shakespeare. Everyone is able to quote all these books. You know, that was supposed to be like our highest ideal. And, you know, with Picard, they show that, but they show like a lot more complexity that, you know, makes it more uh, believable, you know, and less staid. So I think it's really, really exciting. And it's coming out with like new ideas on how maybe future Star Treks are going to come down. What I'm reading right now is a book called Range by Dave Epstein. And it's a really, really interesting psychology book. So it blows away the paradigms on how people think they're supposed to become experts. So, 
usually the idea, if people think they want to become like a math expert or um, computer science expert, is that from the age of three, you know, you're drilling down everything, you're learning nothing but math all the time. But the research shows that people who have a wide variety of different subjects, like, you know, you know, a little bit of psychology, you know, a little bit of math, you know, a little bit of data science, computer programming, that actually is not only as good as learning a very specific subject, but it's even much more preferable. And the reason why is because when you've learned all these different subjects in history, in linguistics, they have their own paradigms, their own metaphors. So when you learn a new subject, say math, you could actually use the paradigms in history and linguistics in order to learn like new math subjects, for example. And I think this book really, really goes into what I had said before about using your widely differing interests like math and history in order to come to the eureka moment of what you're interested in. So I think that book, not only interesting in itself with the latest research in psychology and neuroscience, it would help people to figure out what they want to do and how to get to it. I like it. It reminds me a little bit of the arguments in science that I've seen around like diverse teams and the fact that you come up with better solutions because everybody has a little bit of a different background and therefore uh, looks at the problem a little bit differently and looks at the solution differently. And yeah, so having a wide breadth of topics that you understand, it seems like it would lend itself that way as well. Yeah, because you're looking at the different paradigms and thought processes that have been pioneered and work out in those areas to, yeah, to innovate in others. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. This has been really fun. And uh, I really enjoyed kind of diving into NLP and seeing what's going on out there. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.